listening to the sermon podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado, and you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. Grace, peace, and mercy is yours from the triune God. Amen. Happy Holy Trinity Sunday, or as I like to call it, Unexplainable Church Doctrine Sunday. (laughs) This week I began to realize that maybe it's kind of perfect that Holy Trinity Sunday falls right after Pentecost, because the early followers of Jesus had just experienced the absolute whirlwind of his ministry on earth, and after the dust and the confetti and the streamers of Pentecost had settled to the ground, and after the tongues of fire had been extinguished, they had to have looked at each other and said, Uh, what just happened? (laughs) I wonder if they looked around and in order to make any sense out of it whatsoever, they naturally started to do a bit of what we like to call theology. We in the church like to try and confine theology to seminary classrooms taught by approved people and to approved people, but I'm here to tell you that if you have spoken of God and asked questions about God, then you are a theologian. Congratulations. Uh, But don't get too excited because, you know, it doesn't exactly pay well. (laughs) So we're going to talk about the Trinity, kind of, but before your eyes glaze over, look, I understand that theology can seem unnecessarily cumbersome, abstract, and is the source of unexplainable church doctrine. But when theology is pulled back into the dirt of reality and actual human lives, it can be beautiful and filled with power. Trust me, when those first followers of Jesus were doing theology right after Pentecost, it wasn't abstract. Their theologizing came out of their experience of Jesus who was flesh and blood and who had walked alongside them. They had in an embodied and not an academic way seen, experienced, and learned So much. Jesus had turned jars of water into wine. They had broken bread more times than they could count with Jesus and each other and whoever else Jesus insisted on having around the table. They had seen wondrous healings. They fed thousands with seemingly nothing available. With Jesus around, everyday things and everyday people took on new meaning. The things they thought were holy became insignificant. And the things they thought were common became holy. So after all these amazing events happened, they started wondering a few things, like, what does it mean that Jesus and the Father are one? What does it mean that God refused to be confined to some remote heaven light years away, refused to just politely stay seated on a throne of judgment, removed from the distastefulness of humanity, but instead came down and became part of humanity? as a baby born from a human woman? What does it mean that we received the Holy Spirit and we received that spirit into our actual human bodies? And so the early church did the only thing they could do. They searched their scriptures for help with how they might understand such a mystery. And I'm convinced that the Proverbs reading we just heard was among the scriptures they read. See, there is this strain of Christian thought that holds that the wisdom of God that is personified as a woman in Proverbs 
is also the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word of God made fully human and known to us as Jesus of Nazareth. I once read that, pro- that same Proverbs text that we just heard to one of you guys, that one where wisdom is a woman who was present with God before creation, to someone here who grew up in a super conservative evangelical context. And when I read it to him, he was totally scandalized and looked at me like I'd perhaps just let Gloria Steinem add a few verses to the Bible. <laughs> He then read it for himself, and he was like, wait, why didn't I ever know that was in the Bible? Well, I'm sure you guys could come up with a few reasons. I totally understand why some people don't like this idea of Lady Wisdom from Proverbs being another way of speaking of the Christ, and it's not like you have to, you know, believe that, but I understand why they're a little uncomfortable about it, because it feels like mixing up the linen and the wool and the pork and the milk and the lady parts and the man parts, uh, But while some of us may have never heard of Lady Wisdom from Proverbs, what is certain to me is that the writer of John's Gospel did know it and knew it well. Listen again to the Proverbs reading and think of those first disciples reading this text with questions in hand and searching to understand what they just experienced. Does not wisdom call and does not understanding raise her voice? The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago, Ages ago, I was set up at the first beginning from before the beginning of the earth. Then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. Delighting in the human race. Not wrathfully condemning the human race, as many were taught was God's nature, but loving them, delighting in them. Okay, now here's how John begins to tell the story of Jesus. See if you don't hear Lady Wisdom. Keep in mind that the Greek word logos, translated in this reading as word, can also be translated as wisdom. So here's how John begins to tell, once the community was theologizing after Pentecost, begins to tell the story. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The theological questions Jesus' followers asked themselves, questions that resulted in the writing of gospels, weren't abstract ideas which didn't have anything to do with real lives, as so much theology is now. Their theological questions came from having been around Jesus, who seemed to bring new meaning to the earthly things that were all around them, everyday objects and everyday people in whom Jesus indicated that the glory of God is revealed. As Jesus says to Nicodemus, how can you understand heavenly things if you don't understand earthly things? So what can it mean that God would slip into the vulnerability of skin and be made flesh? Seems a lousy idea, after all, given the very sloppy and broken reality of our physical lives as humans. Our bodies bruise and decay and disappoint us. They sag insistently toward the earth. So why in the world would God not spare God's self the indignity of having things like sweat glands and the hiccups? (laughs) The psalmist reminds us that God knit us together in our mother's womb and that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Of course, I see at least two barriers to really believing this. 
Firstly, there is the fact that as a middle-aged woman, my body seems to be deteriorating right before my eyes. How wonderfully and fearfully made is a body which ages or grows fat or develops cancer or no longer produces insulin? What am I supposed to do with a body that's going to die? The other barrier to believing our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made is that, obviously, we are quite bombarded by messages otherwise. Messages from every billboard we see or commercial we hear, convincing you that A, your body is bad, and B, your body can be perfect if you buy a certain product. And of course, let there be no mistake, this is a billion-dollar industry. The word, the wisdom of God became flesh and dwelt among us. God came and made God's home with us in a real body. So I wonder if maybe in the incarnation, God has done nothing less than blessed all human flesh. And even God, having finished creating the physical world, including the human form, God called it good. Not perfect, mind you, but good. So let us remember that our good but imperfect bodies are born of God And so we have no business calling what God pronounced good anything but good. Because if the word became flesh and lived among us, then despite our botoxic quest for the illusion of perfection, your body, your body is beautiful to God. Because Jesus came and in his almost disturbingly physical existence showed us what God looks like. Not in some ethereal alternate alternate spiritual plane, but right here in the midst of our physical, embodied, earthly reality, Jesus said, here's what being born of God looks like. It looks like not worrying about what we're to eat or drink. It looks like loving the bodies of other people who, like us, will die. It looks like touching human flesh as if it's holy instead of worrying that it's unclean. And it looks like what we are about to do. It for sure looks like breaking bread and drinking wine with all the wrong people. And then at the end, Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Even the Holy Spirit was given in a physical way out of Jesus' body. So if God saw fit to wear our native garb Should we not bless and care for our own flesh as well as for the other bodies that God loves? Should we not have concern for any violation or starvation or trafficking of any human body? If God could have a human body, then maybe we should not hate our own. Maybe if God had a body, then we should begin to see all human bodies as sacred since God has blessed them to be so. Amen.